believe in divine appointments? Do you know what those are? Divine appointments. Divine appointments are those, are uh, relationships that are uh, intentionally designed by God. It's, it's God bringing either a person or people into your life in a way that is unmistakably God. Do you believe in divine appointments? I got to tell you, Christianity is split on this. There's some people who say, no, nah, Brian. God doesn't do divine appointments. He just gives us that opportunity and that responsibility. Just share Jesus with who's in your life. But there's other people like grandma, my grandma. Man, she believed in divine appointments. In fact, my grandma would believe that every appointment is a divine appointment. If you had the blessing of serving my grandma dinner at Spires on Monday night, you were a divine appointment. And you would be sure that you would receive two things from her. Number one, you'd get a generous tip. And then you'd get a big talk about the gift of Jesus. You would get both of those. You don't get the tip without the talk. You would get a great tip, but you'd get a great talk about who Jesus was. If, if you're one of those people that go door to door trying to sell people something at their door, or trying to convince grandma to vote a certain way in the next election, you've got to know. Grandma views you as a divine appointment. She would listen to everything you had to say. And then she would not let you leave until you listened to everything she had to say. My grandma believed, I think, every appointment was a divine appointment, something that God was orchestrating for her to share her faith. Every good opportunity, every hard opportunity, but each and every one of them was an opportunity for her to share Jesus with whoever God brought into her life. My question, do you believe in divine appointments? Do you believe that God orchestrates things for you to share your faith in good times and hard times, that God is at work to bring the gospel to the sight of those who have yet to hear it and believe it? If there is ever an example of a divine appointment in Scripture, it'd be Acts 26. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in there. Acts chapter 26. While you're turning there, I'll give you a brief recap of where we are in the book of Acts. We're nearing the end. But it's really the last couple of weeks we've been focusing on the last couple of years of Paul's life. It really started at the tail end of the third missionary journey. Paul believed that he was heading toward Jerusalem, that God called him to Jerusalem and let him know there were going to be hard times there. In fact, as he was telling his Christian friends that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer, his Christian friends said, no, 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 don't go. As if God can't use and do great things in the midst of hard times. But Paul was undeterred, believing God was calling him to Jerusalem. And sure enough, he wasn't there two weeks until something crazy happened. There was a huge riot inside the temple. He was beaten and, and had to be protected by Roman guards. He was taken away out of the crowd. Paul convinced the Roman guard to allow him to share his testimony to that, to that angry crowd of people. Because of Paul's testimony, the people got angry again and he had to be rescued again by the Roman soldiers. 
Paul had a series of trials where he was falsely accused and mistreated. He's been in house arrest. He's been in this corrupt system now for over two years. And finally, last week, it's as if Paul has had enough with this kangaroo court system, with the corruption of his culture, and decided that he would claim his right as a Roman citizen to be tried by Caesar himself. But before Paul gets shipped off to Rome, God has one more appointment for him. As we read last week, there was one more character that God brought into this system. His name was King Agrippa and Bernice. King Agrippa is from a long line of characters who stood in opposition to the ministry of Jesus. His great-grandpa was the one who killed all those babies hoping to kill Jesus, the man who was born king of the Jews. His great-uncle killed John the Baptist. His father killed James and wanted to kill the apostle Peter if it wasn't for the prayers of the church and the deliverance of God. And now King Agrippa is here to hear the testimony of Paul. The text also says that King Agrippa is there with Bernice. Bernice is not King Agrippa's wife. Bernice is King Agrippa's sister. One year younger, but most people believe they were in an incestuous relationship at the time. So I tell you, if anyone was outside the gospel, if anyone was too broken to be saved, it was King Agrippa and Bernice. And yet that's the setting for the next aspect of Paul's testimony. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 26, we're actually going to go up to the end of Acts chapter 25. I want to share this setting with you. It's what I call the trap. I want you to understand how the Greek text set this up. I mean, it's really quite interesting. It goes this way. Right now, finally, after all of this, there's one last trial before he gets shipped off to Rome. And and he's going to meet King Agrippa. Look, verse 23, Acts 25, verse 23, begins this way. He says, so on the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Let me hit pause for a minute. I want you to understand the setting of this. So this is not only the governor of the region. You have King Agrippa and Bernice. And look what it says. All the prominent men of the city. I mean, the who's who, the high-ranking, the well-known, the powerfully influential people. All of the who's who of that entire region was here to hear, was there to hear the testimony of Paul. And I love, Luke gives us kind of the atmosphere of it. He says, they were all there amid great pomp. That term, great pomp, a ton of pageantry, great flair, real pizzazz. The Greek word for that, by the way, pomp, it's fantasia. It's where we get our English term fantasy from. When I was in Greek, having to learn all these terms, This was one of the terms I could always remember because I pictured this. (laughs) You ever hear this one? You remember that show where Mickey gets this sorcerer's hat 
And he begins to, to bring up this parade of mischief. There's hippos and tutus. There's brooms carrying water buckets. If you want to picture what God was orchestrating right here in Caesarea with King Agrippa, I picture Jesus just concocting this opportunity where people walking in. It's like the Emmys and the Grammys. All the famous people walking in, waving to the crowds, dressed up, gussied up, ready for this celebration. And I want you to look at, at the very end. Look at what it, let's keep reading, verse 24. So in the midst of all of this fantasia, in the midst of this fantasia, in the midst of this, this celebration with real pizzazz, where all the who's who is coming together to hear about this man, look at what Festus says, verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both the Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer but, big biblical but right there, but I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, decided to send him, yet I have, no, I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa. Look at this. So that after the investigation is, has taken place, I may have something to write. A term investigation, hear the case, give thorough examination. Hey, all of you here, we're not here to gawk at Paul. I want you to listen to his testimony. I want you to really focus on his words. I mean, you want to talk about just an easy setup for the greatest evangelist ever. All of the famous people in town, God puts in one spot. And the leader says, I want you all to pay attention to every word investigate what he's saying, think through his message. Verse 27, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. It's crazy, I'm gonna send this criminal for a capital punishment? And I don't even know what to charge him with. All the famous people, listen to Paul. And you gotta know, Paul's just chomping at the bit at this, right? We've been with Paul now for years. I mean, Paul's always ready to share the gospel, but this, this is like a softball pitch to Paul. Paul is always ready. After all of these years of false accusations, home imprisonment, all of the mistreating, all the corruption, Paul is still ready to just share his faith, to bring the gospel. Reminding of something that the apostle Peter encourages Christians back then and today to do. He says this, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. I mean, Paul or Peter is saying, be ready as if the divine appointment is ever ready. And keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Peter, always be ready as if God is orchestrating something for you. Even in the midst of the hard times. Even in the midst of kooky culture. Always be prepared for God to use that to prepare a time for you. Well, 
God set the trap. He's brought all the famous people in the one place to hear the greatest evangelist, Christian evangelist, at least to their date, possibly ever, and has prepared them to hang on every word he shares. And that's where we get now to chapter 26. We get to hear the message of Paul. And I want you to know, if I was Paul, I'd start my message differently. I mean, it would have been easy for Paul when he had all these powerful people, all these influencers in the room, for him to say, listen, I've been railroaded for years. He could have outed the corruption of the high priest, but he didn't. He could have talked about how Governor Felix was trying to get a bribe from him and put him in house arrest for no reason at all, but he didn't. He could have talked about those 40 men who went on a fast and uh, a strike until he was dead. He could have gone into all of that, but he didn't. Paul understood he had one opportunity. He had everyone surrounding him, hanging on his every word. And he didn't waste that opportunity defending himself. He used that opportunity to defend the gospel. Look what he says. Acts 26. Starting in verse 1, he says, Agrippa, Agrippa said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand, proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you today, especially because you're an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Paul's like, I, I, I love this opportunity. I'm really excited to be able to come here and help you see things as I do. But he begins in a unique way. He says, if you really want to understand about my life, the first thing you have to understand is my error. Paul doesn't start bragging about everything he's accomplished. He starts his message letting everyone know his mistake. Look how he did it. Verse 4, he says, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. In the Greek, that's a, that's a superlative, a double superlative, meaning I was the most strictest. It's horrible English, but it's great Greek. I was the most strictest sect. Man, I was about, there was no one more about this than me. Look how he described it to the church in Philippi. He said, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul's like, man, I was committed to this. There was no one more committed to this than me. Let's keep going. Verse 6. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people? If God does raise the dead. 
Verse 9, he says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Man, I am so committed to what I thought was right. I thought I had to hunt down Christians. Verse 10, is this is, and this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many in the saints of prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my own vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them, even to foreign cities. Paul's like, man, I was driven by this. I thought I was right. I thought I saw things correctly. I was so committed to this, I saw myself as a judge of everyone else who didn't see things the way I did. Verse 12 while I was so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Kick against the goads. If you're not familiar with a goad, it's a sharp stick that farmers would put behind the legs of an ox. So when they'd put the harness on the ox, it would kick in defiance of the weight and the control, and every time they'd kick, they'd get a poke. It didn't take long for the smart oxes to learn, but they're stubborn oxes that would continue to kick. Jesus, I love this. This is an extra detail that Paul gives here. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me, you stubborn ox? I love that. If anyone can call Paul a stubborn ox, it's Jesus, not you. Jesus says, you're a stubborn ox. You're kicking, you're rebelling, you're fighting against me. There's many people who believe that Jesus is implying that Paul had a conscience in his heart. He knew that something was wrong with this decision in his life. But he was fighting against God. He was stubborn and wanting to do things his way and not God's way. I was thinking, you know anyone who's ever fought against God? The Bible's filled with people who fought against God. Pharaoh. Exodus is filled with the stories of one man's fight against God and he failed miserably. Jacob, he wrestled with the Lord. He got a limp out of it. How about Satan? 40 days and 40 nights he tempted Jesus and failed. Revelation tells of this great battle at the end of time between Jesus and Satan in the Greek Jesus shows up, says a word, it's finished, boom, fight over. Bible's filled with people who fought against God and lost. You can add the Apostle Paul to one of those. I was thinking this week, you ever fight against God? You know in your heart, God is calling you, but you're kicking against the goads, you're a stubborn ox. You don't want to do things your way. 
You know God's calling you to forgive in your heart. But you're holding that grudge. And it's poisoning your soul and you know it. But you still won't forgive. You know God's calling you to be generous with your resources because everything is God's and we're here to steward them for the kingdom purpose. Yet you hoard them. And you wonder why your lifestyle and your focus is so much on the world and where you struggle so much about being about the call of God. Or maybe there's a stubborn sin that continues to plague your life. You know God's calling you to take steps, to cut it out. But you don't. So I think if we're honest, many of us are like Paul. We know the call of God. But we're just a stubborn ox wanting to do things our way instead of his. Paul says, hey, you want to know my story? Begins with my error. I'm a stubborn ox. I thought I knew what was best. I wanted to do things my way instead of God's way. God corrected me. But he said, it goes from his error to his call Paul says, from my error, then God called me. Look what he says. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. A term minister, man, we hear that and we think of authority. Oh, he's a minister, he's a pastor, he's a man of the cloth. Like God's given him this awesome authority and power. Let me help you understand what the term minister is. It's something that I think even young pastors need to hear. That term minister is not an authoritative term. That term minister doesn't mean in charge. That term minister doesn't mean the smartest. It doesn't mean the most spiritual. You know what that term minister means? In Greek, under rower. Under rower. It's used to describe someone on a war vessel back in the day in the belly of the boat and they have one oar and they're rowing. And they row to the beat of the captain. They don't get to decide their speed, their pace, when to row forwards, when to row backwards. No, sir. A minister is an under rower, a servant who is committed to, for life, by the way. You don't promote from under rower to captain. You likely don't live that long. You're a servant in the belly of the boat who answers only to the captain. And you just row to his beat serving the goods of the country, the goods of the captain for the rest of your life. Paul says, that's what I was called to. I'm a minister, I'm a servant. I'm an under rower. And you wonder maybe how Paul made it through all that suffering 
throughout that hardship? How he remained faithful to God in the midst of the struggle? Could it, could it be in his head he didn't think he deserved any better than that? Paul's like, look, I'm an under rower. I'm a servant. I mean, I will sacrifice whatever I need to if that's what the captain wants me to do. Paul says, make no mistake, here's my call. I wasn't called to be a high priest. I wasn't called to, to be a leader of the church. I was called to be a servant, an under rower, a slave to the captain. Well, what was, he, what was his call then? What was his, he called to serve to do? Look at verse 18 or 17. He says this, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, look at verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. You want to know Paul's purpose in life? He says, I am a slave to this. He says, number one, open their eyes. In the Greek, that means help blind men see Remove the blinders from their eyes so they can see real life. Man, it's not a judgment. Paul's like, look, y'all are blind. You're stumbling around through life. So my call as a servant of God is to open your eyes either through miraculous means or through physical means, removing the blinders from your eyes. I want to open your eyes. I want to enlighten you. So that, look at this, you may turn from darkness, turn around, change direction, change your belief, change your life. I want to open your eyes so that you can choose to turn from darkness to light. Look at this, turn from the dominion of Satan to God. Paul says, you want to know why you should turn? Instead of being under the thumb of Satan, you may receive forgiveness. You don't earn it. You don't buy it. You don't achieve it. You just accept it. That term forgiveness, by the way, reminds you a complete pardon for your crimes. Freedom from the consequences of your sin. Paul says, that's my call. King, you want to know why I'm doing all of this? I'm no one famous like all of you. I'm not someone of great influence and power. I'm an under rower. I'm a servant of the king. And I'm here to open people's eyes so that they might turn from the dominion of Satan where they're just ground into the ground for eternity in hopes that they will choose to receive forgiveness, a pardon for their failures, a relief from their crimes. And he goes into the final part. Says, you know my error. You know my call. Here's my life. Verse 19, he says, so King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. I love this. Paul's like, what, do you, what, what would you want me to do? I'm on this road, Jesus himself appears to me, calls me a stubborn ox, tells me to pick up an oar and row his direction. Paul's like, what do you want me to do? Tell God no? 
So, so I did not prove disobedient, but I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. And this is why some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And look at verse 22. So having obtained help from God, in the Greek, because God is orchestrating things this way, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was a sufferer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to reclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul said, because God's call, because of all those divine appointments God has orchestrated in my life, I'm preaching to you. I'm not here by chance, Paul says. My suffering isn't by chance. My travel's not by chance. All of these trials aren't by chance. You, King Agrippa and Bernice, being here hearing this, not by chance. This is all obtained from God's help, from God's activity, from God's work. This is all God orchestrating this to happen. Let me show you the response. You have the who's who of that entire region all in this room hearing Paul talk about his error. Man, probably the first Pharisee ever who admitted he was wrong. He gets into his call. The first great leader of the church who didn't claim authority for himself but place himself as an under rower for the benefit of everybody else. You'd think that someone would respond positively out of this crowd, but the first response we get, we get from Festus. Look at this, verse 24. While Paul was saying this, like he got interrupted. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Out of your mind, you're, a, you're nuts, you're crazy, you're insane. Your great learning is driving you mad. You've been in school too long. That Greek word for, for mad is mania. It's where we get our English word maniac. Paul, you're a maniac, you're nuts. This is kooky talk. Paul, this could not have happened. But Paul wasn't done. Look at verse 25. But Paul, right? Big biblical but right there. Just when you think maybe Paul would cower. Okay, well, whatever. Paul's not done. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus still being nice. By it are words of sober truth. And I love this. Paul looks at, the, at King Agrippa for the king knows. He knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. King Agrippa, you know all this is true. Your great grandpa was the one who was trying to kill Jesus. Your great uncle is the one who killed John the Baptist. Your dad is the one who's been after, King, after the apostle James and Peter. You know what's been going on. You've heard the stories, remember, when Jesus was resurrected? 
And the official said, hey, 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 tell him the disciples took it, took the body. King Agrippa, you know all this stuff. You know what Jesus did. You know what the disciples have been saying. None of this has been under cloak. None of this has been hidden from you. Hey, King Agrippa, do you believe in Jesus or no? Straight up ask King Agrippa. Hey, King Agrippa, am I crazy? Look at King Agrippa's response, verse 28. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, will you persuade me to become a Christian? Seriously, Paul, you're trying to convert me right here? I love that. Anyone want to guess Paul's answer? In short, heck yeah. Look what he says. Agrippa, seriously, Paul, you're trying to convert me right here? Paul says, I wish, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Man, my heart said, all y'all, that's in there, I'm sure. All y'all would come to trust in Jesus Christ. See, the apostle Paul, there's no one outside the reach of the gospel. In Paul's head, there's no one too broken. There's no one too lost. There's no one too hard. There's no one too damaged. In the apostle Paul's head, everyone is the divine appointment away from becoming as he is, but without chains. Appreciate that, Paul. I want to ask you, do you have that confidence? Do you believe that there's no one outside the reach of the gospel? That everyone is just one divine appointment away from seeing Jesus as you do. You believe it? Why don't you watch this video? It's a friend of mine and her experience with a situation like this. Go ahead and Hi, watch my it. name is Lynette Lazardi, and Pastor Brian asked me to share my story about writing my brother Arlen's name on the Reach One board. And as I look now at the board, I can see that I wrote his name very faintly and because I honestly wondered if God could actually save him because he is a very um, cynical truck driver. But I wrote it anyway because we're all gonna live forever. It's just a matter of where we're gonna spend eternity. And as I look back now, I realize that that was the month that my brother began having symptoms of the disease that was gonna take his life in six months. And I asked my Sunday school, uh, Potter's House, if they could pray that the Lord would give me opportunities to share the gospel. And um, also a group of artists that I meet with here and so they did, and, but the Lord told me, don't, don't give him everything all at once. Like the gospel is a bunch of grapes, and you just take one grape and give it to him, and the next time another grape, and so on. And so I did, and Arlen was absolutely not interested at all. I, I had to share with him the news from the doctor that he had about a week and a half left before he was going to go into a hepatic coma from which he would not wake up. And I told him that in a few days he would be standing before God and he would have to give an account of his life. So I asked Arlen why he would want to continue to reject Christ, who had done all for him in order to follow Satan. And at this point, Arlen 
asked, he said, I just need one more day. He was just barely whispering. So I prayed that the Lord would give him one more day, but that he would not give him peace or rest until he had repented. And he was able to talk with his son and achieve reconciliation and apologize for many things. And then Arlen asked me to come back in. And he told me, he says, you tell everyone. And I said, well, tell them what? Is it, are you saying that you have become a Christian? And he nodded because he was just very weak now. And I wanted to make sure he understood because the door was the door was closing. Do you understand that repentance means that you, not just that you're sorry, but that you turn 180 degrees and you walk the other way towards Christ? Are you telling me that this is what you have done? And he, he closed his eyes and he nodded. And we, we buried him um, on October 6th out at Riverside National Cemetery. My, my Sunday school, Potter's House, who had been praying for the Lord to give me opportunities to share the gospel, they even prepared um, a reception for us. And it was in this warm atmosphere, I was able to bring my whole family to look at the, the Reach One board and point out Arlen's name on there and tell them how the church had prayed for his salvation. And many were blessed, but there were some that I could see that the Lord was giving them one gospel grape. I'm grateful to the church for the prayers that they have put into praying for the salvation of those on that board. Lynette, uh, after that happened, wrote me a letter explaining that story. I was like, oh man, you guys got to hear that. An example of someone who's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if gospel can help someone like my brother. I'm going to write his name faintly, without confidence. But God gave her the opportunity. Man, I got to tell you, there's no one outside the reach of the gospel. There's no one outside the reach of Jesus. And I just wonder, what is he orchestrating for you? Man, you see God's fingerprints all over this chapter in Acts. And I gotta wonder if there's fingerprints like this in your life. Normally our reach month is March. It still is. But the board's gonna be out there a little early this year. And I wanna ask you, is there one person that God has put in your life that you've written off? There's no way. They're too far gone. They're too far lost. They're too rebellious. They're too liberal. They're too this. They're too that. Would you be willing to write a name down and pray that God would orchestrate something for you to open their eyes, help them see Jesus as you do, that they would have an opportunity to turn from darkness and receive salvation. Out in the lobby, there will be a whiteboard just like this with markers. I want to invite you. Write a name down. I'll be praying for those names all month. 
Our church will be praying for those names all month. Our church will be praying for you all month. That the month of March, God would orchestrate something in your life to open their eyes. That they might choose repentance over darkness, forgiveness over consequence. Let me show you how the chapter ends, verse 30. When Paul's finished, when Paul's done, verse 30, the king stood up and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them and when they had gone aside, they began talking to one another saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. We don't know the final resting place of Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, and all the famous influencers around the world, but we know this. It wasn't because Paul didn't try. I guess my question for you is, who is in your life that needs to hear the gospel? I think maybe you and I need to become more like the Apostle Paul, and if I could be so bold, more like my grandma. Start looking for God to orchestrate opportunities for us to be an instrument of God's glory in the life of someone else. Who do you need to write on that board today? Or perhaps you're here because you're still fighting like Paul was. God has been stirring in your heart. And you know it's time to turn from darkness and receive forgiveness. But you're just a stubborn ox. Maybe today's that day where you receive the mercy of God for your heart and for your soul. The Apostle Paul said this, said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. My heart and prayer is that you would leave with this confidence in your heart today. Either that it will lead you to receive it or you'll be led to share it with someone else. Let's pray. Uh, God is a church. We come before you and acknowledge, God, that there's so often we just get distracted. We get distracted by the struggles of this world or by the busyness of life or our desire for our kids or our neighborhood or our politics or our country. We get so distracted on things that are going on down here that we forget all about your plan up there. So God, I ask that you would give us something much like you gave Paul that confidence, that unction. God, I invite you to call us ministers. God, make us all ministers for you, not judgers of culture, not rulers of people, not authority figures over others. God, make us servants of you. God, we pray that you would open our eyes, allow us to see people as you do. That we'd be able to see your 
divine appointments you're creating for us. God, give us eyes like you gave my grandma. We have boldness and confidence in proclaiming your gospel, the power of salvation for all who believe. God, I pray for people here. God, give us one name. One name, God, that you want us to be praying about. One name that we'll be looking for a divine appointment, for a miraculous movement of your spirit. Give us an opportunity. God, give us a name and give us the boldness to write them down and pray for them. And God, I pray for people here. God, I know there's at least someone here that's still a stubborn ox. I lived that for so long. So God, if there's someone here who is still rejecting your mercy, who's still choosing to live in darkness, live in judgment, instead of receiving forgiveness, God, I pray that you would just give them the ability today to reach for you. God, as they lift their failures before you, their guilt and their shame and their fears, God, may you hear them as you've promised and may you forgive them as you've said you would. Declare them righteous. God, may you lead them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake from here, God, that you would change their life restore their relationships, renew their heart for you, grow them, change their perspective. And they might be a new creation in your power. And God, I pray you give them peace even today, a peace that's beyond human comprehension if they, as they trust their life into your hands, a joy that's overflowing. God, as a church, we ask God that you would just continue to work within us continue to form us into a pure reflection of who you are, God, that we might bring you even more glory together. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, last Sunday of the month, it's, or first Sunday, first Sunday, last, whatever, you know what today is. It's communion. And it's here to remind us of two things. Number one, the power of God at work in our lives. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for you. He left heaven as something not to be held onto to take on the form of his own creation so that he would die, and not just any death, but death on the cross. That's a sign of his love and devotion to you. He says, eat this bread in remembrance of me. And there's the cup, symbolic of his blood, to give you confidence that he has washed your sins. He has declared you righteous. He has freed you from all sin. And he's empowered you with the spirit to be a reflection of his glory. Communion is a reminder of everything that God has completed already for you. But communion is also a reminder of what we have committed to him. As Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the power of Jesus until he returns. So I invite you, if you are a child of God, if you have received forgiveness a hundred years ago or for the first time today, you're welcome here. 
to receive communion, to remember what Jesus has done for you, and to remember what we have committed for Jesus. The ushers and deacons will be releasing you, and then we'll take communion together in a moment.